0: You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. I invite you to take your Bibles out, whatever form they come in, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're back at it. We've taken a bit of a Christmas break and New Year's break from our study of this letter that Paul the Apostle writes to the church that exists in the Greek city of Corinth. Um, we're going to be looking at all of chapter five today. If you are a guest, you've come into an interesting Sunday. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians 5, it's not for the faint of heart, and it addresses a topic that, um, quite frankly, doesn't get addressed enough. And, uh, and what results is that there's much confusion if, if uh, it needs to be entered, if that makes sense. And so, um, and so I want to walk through it with you. It's one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible most often here, because this is a text that if left to your own, you probably wouldn't choose it to be a part of a, a sermon series, but uh, it is so necessary, and like I said, uh, one that should be addressed more than it already is, and so one of the great things about teaching through books of the Bible is you have to teach certain things that um, that you may choose not to. So let me read chapter five, all of the verses, then I'll press pause, we'll pray, and then we'll start walking <coughs> walking through it together. Paul writes, it is actually reported. That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. If you were here in November, we took a whole Sunday just walking through verse 1. And you, verse 2, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. Hey, Paul bringing the heat. Uh, We need to pray and we need to seek God's leading and discernment and wisdom as we walk through this chapter together. So, Father, we do. We come before you asking that you would work and move by way of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words 2,000 years ago. But in the same way that the Holy Spirit produced this work, the Holy Spirit continues to be proclaimed and work through the word today. He produced it. Now he proclaims it to us. So guide us, give us wisdom as we walk through this together in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) You got to forgive me. I'm still dealing with a little bit of the the COVID hack that that I got a couple of weeks ago. So you're going to listen to my sexy, easy listening DJ voice today a little bit. All right. (coughs) Like I said, we've taken a six week or so break from this series. We come back to chapter five. Uh, This, as I mentioned, is a a letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church. But one of the things that we discovered early on in the fall is that it's a messy church, big time messy church, lots of things going on in it that we're gonna see, have already seen. One of the ways that we saw in the fall in the first four chapters that their messiness shows up is in their divisions, remember that? A lot of divisions, a a lot of camps, Paul people, Apollos people, Cephas people the uh, hyper-spiritual Jesus-only people. And Paul calls them boastful because of that. He calls them boastful, boastful, not spirit-led, certainly not gospel-minded. Some key verses, just to remind you of what we've seen thus far, go back to chapter 1. Paul writes in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Hang a right, go to chapter 2, look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Chapter 3, take a look at verses 21 to 23. So let no one boast in man, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. One more verse that will lead us to our text. Chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Which leads to our passage today, one of the most confrontational passages in the entire Bible. Um, You probably already picked that up when I read it. A quick flyover, what's going on? Well, there's a man in this church that's in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. Um, It seems that the woman is not in the church because of how Paul deals with the man and doesn't deal with her. So more than likely, she's not a part of the church, perhaps not even a Christian. It didn't seem like, doesn't seem like she was just based on the behavior. Um, and so Paul deals specifically with the man in the church, not with her, as we will see. What's the issue for the church? Well, the issue is that not only isn't the church calling this sin and calling the man out, they're actually boasting about his behavior, believe it or not. Verse two, you are arrogant. First takeaway, right out of the gate, if you like taking notes. For a church to not deal with sin is not loving, it's not advanced, but it's arrogant. Tolerance of sin shows pride. Uh, where did their arrogance come from? Why were they boasting? Right? Why were they puffed up about this? Well, most likely it comes because They believed that the grace of God gave them freedom and permission to live however you wanted to live. I think I'm right in thinking this because not only is this an issue in the church in Corinth, it's also an issue in different places in the New Testament as well. I'll take you to Romans in just a second, but it's also an issue that continues to be a problem in the church today. So they felt that God's grace was so great that a man in our church is in an ongoing relationship, romantic relationship with his father's wife. Why do I say this is an issue elsewhere? This misunderstanding of the grace leading to permission, boasting, I can live however I want. Well, Paul writes the following in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, we, <clears throat> how can we who died to sin still live in it? So God's grace is so great that we should, this was the mindset, we should live in sin to show the world how great grace is. Paul's response, by no means. This is the hell no of the Greek language, and I'm not overstating it. By no means should this be your mindset. It was going on in Rome, it's going on here in Corinth, but it also continues to be an issue today. Um, I've recently had conversations with a few people about someone they know who claims to be a brother, or at least did claim to be a brother, living in unabashed sin. The question is, how should we respond? One of the people I had a discussion with said that they would say nothing for, and you know how this ends, for they want to be gracious. But is that grace? Is that what grace looks like? Is grace synonymous with permission and affirmation and acceptance? Is that what grace is? Well, the answer is, by no means is that grace. It's actually arrogant to think that way, and the reason why it's arrogant is because people who do think that way think they know better than God. So God calls us to respond this way, but we're going to respond this way because I know better on how I should deal with this. And again, Paul says, by no means is that where you should land. What does Paul call the Corinthian church to instead? Instead of being arrogant and boastful? Well, let me highlight very quickly three things that show up in this chapter. First, they should mourn. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So instead of being arrogant, they should mourn over the sin of this man. Why? Well, because sin, number one, grieves the heart of God. And number two, when one suffers... In the church, we all suffer. The sin of one in the church, whether you believe it or realize it or or not, affects other people in the church when it's not dealt with. I know this is a challenge for some of us, especially when we live in our very self-centered culture, where the self, what's good for me, is most important and not the community. It challenges our mindset on that. It challenges our view of the ecosystem that is the church as we will see in what it means to be a member in the church. More on that later. So first, they should mourn, not boast. Number two, they should judge. Verse three. For though absent in my body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's not in the city. He's writing, obviously, to this church, and he says... When you gather, in verse 4, when you gather, when you assemble together, I will be with you in spirit. I've already pronounced judgment on this person, and you need to do the same thing. This bugs us, though, right? Because we may not have a lot of Bible verses memorized, but one of the ones that we have memorized is that somewhere in the Bible it says that we shouldn't judge. Somewhere. It's out there. Right? Who am I to judge? I would never judge, right? We say that often. And you're right, the Bible does say that. In fact, it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, Jesus says, judge not so that you not be judged. So it's wrong to judge, right? Would you agree? It's wrong to judge. It is our judgment that judging is wrong. Right? Right? do you know it's impossible not to judge? It's impossible. Anytime you declare something as wrong or right, good or bad, you're judging. Did Jesus not understand that? Well, of course Jesus understood it, and that's why he gives a lot more information about judging than simply what is found in Matthew 7 verse 1. And one of the things that Jesus never does is tell us that Judging is something that we shouldn't do. In fact, he says just the opposite, but he gives us guidelines for it. And he says, you should not judge self-righteously. One of the guidelines? You should not judge hypocritically. Another guideline? You should not judge harshly. Number three, there are other things that he says, but those are some of the highlights coming from that Sermon on the Mount text. Some of the guidelines actually show up in our text in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So what are the guidelines? It's not the responsibility of the church to judge those who aren't in Christ. right? We aren't to make an enemy of the mission field. Right? That's not our role. But it is our role, Paul says, under the full inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are to judge those inside the church. Which is why I think this woman is not a part of the church, but the man is. And therefore, if someone in the church who claims to be a brother in Christ is shacking up with their stepmom, you should judge that behavior as wrong, Paul says. Which leads to a final thing Paul calls this church to. They should purge. Take a look at verse 13. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a quote that shows up a number of times in the Old Testament that Paul is using there to end verse 13. But this isn't the only place he says this. If you go back to verse 2, Paul says in the second part of that verse, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven or yeast used here as a picture of sin. Cleanse out the old yeast that you may be a new lump as you already are. Meaning, act like you are. Be who you are. Live out what has been realized in you. Verse 11. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Yikes. You see what I mean about this text being one of the most confrontational in the entire Bible on the topic that we're looking at today. I mean, if we hated things earlier, we really hate this, this call to purge, get rid of the man. I mean, where's the mercy, right? Where's the compassion? Where's the love? I mean, who amongst us is perfect? Kicking a guy out of the church can't be loving, can it? Well, we have to dig deeper. And 1 Corinthians 5, what we need to dig deeper into, 1 Corinthians 5 introduces a topic uh, of something, a a topic called church discipline, Uh, and it's one of the most prominent, like I've already said a couple of times, one of the most confrontational texts that speaks to this topic. Another, and there are a number in the New Testament, but another prominent text is found in Matthew 18. Some of you are familiar with this text. This is what Jesus says in it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Keep that phrase in mind. It's very important to understand this topic. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, here's a verse, uh, what he says next is one of the most taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. Jesus ends by saying, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Our text, going back to 1 Corinthians 5, seems to pick up where Matthew 18 ends. Because this isn't a private sin, 1 Corinthians 5. This isn't a sin between two brothers. This is public. It's out there. It's widely known. In fact, they know about it, but so do people in the city. They know about it too. That's why Jesus says to the church, you, plural, you're arrogant because you're not dealing with what you know to be true in this man's life. Additionally, there's no confusion that what's going on is wrong. No debate. Paul writes in verse 1 that this kind of thing isn't even okay with those not in the church. In fact, the Mosaic law spoke against it. The civil law spoke against it too. The topic of church discipline um, is a huge one. Many, many, many books have been written on the topic. I have read a number of them, and I reread a couple this week in my preparation. I I don't have the time to address everything that this topic demands. I don't have the time today to actually just highlight everything that we see in 1 Corinthians 5. But what we do, and what I want to give ourselves to, is I want to address two questions with the few minutes that I have remaining. One, why do we have such a tough time with church discipline? Why does it bug us so much, or at least some of us? And two, um, what, what are some personal thoughts that I have on the topic that I have learned over time um, in my ministry life? Uh, in answering these questions, especially question one, I, I, like I said, I've read several, several uh, authors on the topic. Reread, like I said, some this week. But there's one individual, Jonathan Lehman, who has really shaped a lot of my thoughts. And I want to give him credit uh, at, at the very least. So first, first question. Why do we have such a tough time with church discipline? Well, I believe it comes because we don't understand the following as much as we should. Let me give you four things that I don't believe in the church we appreciate and understand as fully and deeply as we should. The first is what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? I mean, if I were taking a a poll and I grabbed you in the lobby nicely grabbed you in the lobby, and I said, what is a Christian? A common response would be something like, well, a Christian is someone who's had their sins forgiven, and one day they're going to go to heaven. That's a common, that's a common definition, and you're not wrong. Praise God. A, a Christian is a person who's been forgiven of their sins, and yes, one day they will go to heaven unless Jesus comes first. But is that all a Christian is? Or is there more? And and what about the what now of being a Christian? Like, what does it mean to us now to be a follower of Christ? Um, Well, a Christian, number one, to start here, has been given a new nature now. They are new creations now. The Spirit of God dwells in them, and they have been adopted into a new family now which means that they have a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. That means something, or it should. To be a Christian means that not only have you been reconciled to God, but that you have been reconciled to God's people. And therefore, to live a Christian life with no regard for your brothers and sisters in Christ is akin to living living life with no regard for your earthly family. And I'm not overstating it. A Christian, biblically speaking, has a new status. They have a new nature, a new family, and a new calling. This is what, this is the role that baptism and communion play in a Christian's life. Baptism identifies us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with those who identify themselves in the same way. To eat the Lord's Supper, is to proclaim Jesus' death and our membership in his body, the church. And therefore, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who wears the name of God on on earth, who represent and declares his gospel and is united to his people. A Christian is an ambassador of Jesus. Someone whose life and work and identity meld together. If you don't understand that, you're gonna have a problem with church discipline. If all you define Christianity as sins forgiven, going to heaven one day, now doesn't matter. You're gonna misunderstand this topic. Second thing that I believe we misunderstand, and that is what is the local church? What 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 is the church? Well, we are actually given a partial definition of the church. When Paul writes in verse 4, you see it there? When you are assembled. See that word assembled? It's the Greek word synago, where we get the word synagogue, which literally means assembly or uh, uh, a coming together, a gathering. Uh, Ekklesia, the word for church in the Greek, literally means assembly or, or gathering. So when you are assembled, when you come together and gather as the church, this is what you are to do. So the church isn't a building. The church is a people, as we know, who are assembled, how? By God's leading. They're assembled by God's providence. They're assembled, 1 Corinthians 12 will show it when we get there, we are assembled according to his will. But important, and here's, I'm going to really push into some of you. You're going to have a tough time with what I'm about to say. But important is, in this, is that Jesus has given kingdom authority to Christians gathered as a local church that he has not given individual Christians. It's important to note that. It's vital. This is what Jesus is speaking of, going back to that Matthew 18 text when he says that the church can loose and bind whatever, and whatever is loosed and bound on earth is loosed and bound in heaven. But that's the role of the church. Jesus says something similar, in fact, um, in John 20, you can read it behind me, when Jesus said to them again, these are the apostles, peace be with you as the Father has sent me Even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is a different way of saying what you bind and what you loose on earth is bound and loosed in heaven. Does Jesus say that we truly can forgive someone's sins? No, Not truly. We can't forgive someone's sins. However, we have been given the gospel and we can say to people, if you come to Jesus, repent of your sins, displaying fruit of that repentance, you're saved. So in that way, we can. Understanding this is vital as well if we're going to understand church discipline. Um, This is uh, what Jesus means in Matthew 18 when he says that if you bring someone before the church... And they don't even repent when brought before the church, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning, you're declaring before the world that there is nothing in this person's life who demonstrates that they're truly a follower of Jesus. That authority has been given to the church. In the same way that when somebody's getting baptized, we ask them, Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? What do we say? They say, yes, we say, based on your confession of faith, based on your testimony, we declare you a follower of Jesus. Reality between that person and God, certainly, but the church declares this person is a follower of Christ, and then we baptize them. This is Matthew 18, the back end, if somebody who claims to be a brother or sister is not repenting of unabashed, practiced sin. And so to be clear, Christians don't join churches. They submit to them. And yet in saying that, the local church isn't an absolute authority over them any more than a parent has absolute authority over a child. Is church leadership perfect? Well, of course not, in the same way that you as a business leader or a parent or a coach aren't perfect. But that imperfection doesn't remove the authoritative mandate of church leadership given by Jesus himself. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What else don't we know as well as we should? Well, a third thing is that we don't know what it means to be a church member as well as we probably should. What does it mean? Well, it probably means more than some of you think currently. Um, Membership in a church is like the I do in a wedding ceremony. That's why we speak of membership as a covenant here at Midtown. Membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian which shows up in three ways. One, a church affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism. That's the role the church is to play. Two, the church promises to give oversight of the individual's discipleship. Just think about the Great Commission. Go into the world... Making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's our call as the church in terms of our discipleship of people in it. And three, the individual submits him or herself to the discipleship of the body and its leaders. I know I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating that an individual doesn't declare themselves to be a member of a local church. The local church declares the individual to be a member of it. To, to misunderstand this and why I'm diving deep in this is because to misunderstand this regarding what the church is and what membership in the church will lead to confusion over church discipline. If you don't have a deep understanding of this, this Topic doesn't make any sense. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, who I referred to um, before, he says, and you can read this behind me it's true that a Christian must choose to join a church, but that does not make it a voluntary organization. Having chosen Christ, a Christian has no choice but to choose to join a church. Last, Last thing that we need to go deeper on and and understand probably more than we do is what church discipline means. Um, Before addressing the end game of church discipline, let me first address some assumptions coming out of what I just went through with you, okay? I know this is more like a lecture today, more information than inspiration, right? I get that. Um, Just hang with me. I'm working hard for you. I love you. I want to serve you well in this. But what are some expectations based on those previous things that are true? One, there is an expectation of transformation for the Christian. We should expect this. A Christian is a new creation. The Spirit of God himself is in them. And therefore, by way of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, a person's life will be transformed. We should expect that. There will be fruit and growth and ongoing Christ-likeness. Do people grow at the same rate? No, but they do grow. Trees are known by their fruit. Something that is given birth to should grow. Happens with babies. It happens with us spiritually too. Secondly, Christians are to represent Jesus on the earth. We should expect that. They are to be as witnesses and ambassadors and and salt and light. This is not optional for those who declare Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's not an option. And therefore, church discipline is a right response for those who don't represent Jesus accurately and rightly. Three, the church has been given authority given by Jesus himself. Churches don't make people Christians, but it does have the Jesus-given responsibility of declaring who and who isn't a Christian. This is what excommunication speaks of. Excommunication literally is you no longer are allowed to participate in communion. Excommunion, excommunication. Um, it's the church saying to the world that it can no longer vouch before the world that this person's citizenship is in heaven. Again, going back to Matthew 18, that's what Jesus is speaking of when we are to consider people like Gentiles or tax collectors, that there is nothing evident that is bearing fruit of who they claim to be. A fourth expectation, membership is submission to a local church in obedience to Christ. Christians are to submit to the affirmation and oversight of the local church, um, which I know you go, well, hey, pastor man. Obviously, you would think that. You're a pastor. Everything I'm sharing with you is found in the New Testament. I'm just a spokesperson. So it's very clear, but I don't think we get it today. Um, Few minutes left. I want to end this time with the minutes that I have remaining by going back and addressing specifically what is the end game of church discipline? What, what is the purpose behind it? Well, first, it's meant to expose sin. Um, think of sin like a cancer, a cancer that needs to be exposed and needs to be cut out which is the the language Paul uses in verse 2. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Second, church discipline is meant to warn. Uh, there, There is a final judgment coming, and discipline is a compassionate warning to it. Third, it's meant to save It's the device of last resort for bringing an individual to repentance. Take a look at verse 5, this weird, wacky verse. Let me read it one more time for you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, this is the return of Jesus. the, The capital D, day of the Lord. What does it mean to hand him to Satan? Well, Satan is the god of this age. It's to remove him from the protection that the church gives to you and me. And whether you realize it or not, there is a protection that comes with being a part of a local church. There is safety, there is is accountability, there's help. And when we are removed from that, some of us do it to ourselves, by the way, when we, we remove ourselves from the local church, we're no longer in that domain of safety. And Paul says, do this for the destruction of the flesh. What is, is, is he talking about being killed? No, the flesh that wars against the spirit. What Paul is saying, when you remove them from that place of safety and family and support and encouragement, and they now continue to live this life of sin, they come to a place by God's grace and work, they come to a place and they say, I don't want this anymore. And they return. And they come back to the church. And and importantly, highly important, they come back to Jesus. And they receive grace upon grace. So that at the return of Jesus, by God's grace, their spirit will be saved. Which means, fourth, that spiritual discipline is meant to protect. Sin, as I said earlier... By a member in the church affects the church. By the way, sin in your own life, if you're a part of a family, affects your family's life, whether you realize it or not. Work as hard as we do at trying to keep things secret. It affects us. Things go on in this present darkness that we don't see, but there is an effect. So too in the church. And so the analogy, as I've highlighted, is Paul talking about yeast. Yeast is always used synonymously with, or most often is used synonymously with sin in the Bible. This is the Passover feast. Passover lamb killed, original Passover blood put on the doorframe of of a house. But also, they were to eat unleavened, bread without yeast. In fact, they were to rid their homes of it when they celebrated Passover. That analogy is the analogy being fleshed out here. Remove that yeast from the lump of dough that is the church because it affects a little bit of... I'm not a cook, but I, I know a little bit about yeast. Put a little bit of yeast, making some bread, man, puffs up, right? Affects the whole thing. That's the analogy Paul is, is using. The, the yeast, the sin, the cancer needs to be removed or else it will kill and destroy The lump that is the church. Fifth, almost done. It's meant, church discipline is meant to preserve a good witness of Jesus. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What Paul is saying is, guys, Jesus did this for you. He sacrificed himself for your sins. So as you live your life, live who you are now in Christ. Remove that yeast. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for you. And it doesn't bear a a sweet picture and model of Jesus for the church who have been saved from their sin by Jesus to not deal seriously with it. Does that make sense? And sixth and last, it's meant to lead people back into right relationship with Jesus. Church discipline is not to be a punishment. It's meant to heal. It's a display of love. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you're a parent, you know this. You love your kids like crazy. Sometimes, not because you don't love them, but because you do, you discipline them so too in the church, as it is in the Lord's work in our lives as well. We're called disciples after all. We're to be disciplined people personally, but we're also to play that role with one another. A love without discipline is no love at all. Love brings healing. Love brings correction. Some final... And brief personal comments and then we'll respond. Thanks for hanging with me today. I appreciate it. Not that you had a choice. Uh, The first, really quickly, most church discipline happens privately and informally. And it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be one brother, sister going to another brother and sister and making things right, just keeping it to the two of you. Like if, if you have to deal with someone, go do it. Don't call the church. Don't talk to your CG about it. Go and make it right. Personal, one on one, you've saved your brother or sister, as Jesus says. Second, church discipline takes much wisdom and, and prayer. It's, it's, it can be very messy. It's not an easy plug and play system. Input this, do this. It's not always that easy. And so we must be people of prayer and conversation, and seeking of, of God's wisdom and leading. Third, church discipline most often should be a slow process. As going back to chapter Matthew chapter 18, one-on-one, two-or-three-on-one, bring it to the church. It's a process. Prayer, counsel, and so forth. It wasn't a quick, a slow process in chapter 5 because this was already known. It was out there. But most often, it's a slow process. And fourth, When dealing with a person's sin, that sin must be outward, it must be serious, and it must be unrepented. Uh, This is not to downplay others' sin, but remember that love covers a multitude of sins. What constitutes serious sin? Well, it certainly includes going to our text, habitual, practiced, and unrepentant sexual immorality. Greed, fevery, abuse, and drunkenness. We're not even to eat with such a one who claims to be a Christian. Hard message. Not too, like I said, inspiring, but very necessary. And and I take joy in, in sharing this because I take joy anytime I get to teach God's word. Uh, and yet, the topic is a weighty one. I get it. And much of my personal experience with church discipline has been walked through with tears and grief. But then there's been the sweet times where I've seen, seen people come back to Jesus as the result of one or two brothers, sisters meeting with him or her. And for that, I'm, I'm glad. And I rejoice over that uh, coming back into the fellowship of the body, to be reminded of their Passover lamb, to be reminded of their Passover lamb who received the discipline of God in their place, which is what this is all about. And so we need to respond to, (laughs) in light of what our Passover lamb has done for us. So would you rise, please, as we do go into a time of response? Uh, Let me pray and then I'll give you some direction. Father, we've heard now from your word, uh, as I've mentioned, it's a weighty topic, it's a heavy one. Some of us may have experience with it and perhaps some of our experience has been negative, things haven't been handled well. And so I, I pray that we wouldn't allow our experience to cloud what is very clear. We wanna be people of discipline individually, individually and corporately, for the sake of the testimony of Jesus. We want to be a people of grace. We want to be a people who love one another so much that they're willing to have uncomfortable conversations. Give us that strength. Give us that conviction. Give us that boldness. We want to make much of you, Jesus, our Passover lamb, who took the discipline of the Father in our place. So as we respond now, may you be pleased with this time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.